0: Hello, I'm John Slade from Campbell to Kel. Welcome to the Digital Housing Maze, an exploration over three episodes of digital within the social housing sector. The format is that we have two panelists, two witnesses, and a firm intention to get to the heart of the matter. Even before COVID-19 changed all our lives, we'd already seen a massive upswing in interest in digital transformation across the social housing sector. But while the business case writes itself, there are clearly some significant obstacles lurking below the surface, obstructing progress. What are those obstacles and how are we going to eliminate or surmount or circumvent them? In the greatest success stories and in the worst messes, we find really useful lessons about leadership and culture. With the sector discernibly behind other sectors, what can an organisation do to catch up? Joining me to discuss these issues and more Klaus Vogelberg, chief architect and technology advisor at global accounting software company Sage, who could speak to the challenges of taking an existing business on the never ending digital journey. And James Tickell, partner at Campbell Tickell, who has spent the last 20 years working with the sector's boards and executive teams to improve their businesses. Klaus, was there a defining moment in Sage's history when digital went from a buzzword to a central pillar within the business?
1: Yeah, the, uh, the Sage story really starts with David Goldman, who had a printing works in Newcastle, and who took on a visiting professor under a DTI scheme to do some technology work for him in the early 80s. And in this particular case, it was to do um, a costing and estimating uh, package, which is quite a complex process Uh, as anyone in the printing industry will know. So Sage produced this product and started to sell it, and then subsequently produced an accounting product. The breakthrough really came when Alan Sugar launched the Amstrad PCW, which was the first low-cost PC in the UK at about £500. Within six weeks, Sage had produced a £99 package to go on to the Amstrad. It was the beginning of a low-cost software revolution in the UK market, and so the business uh, took off. But where David Goldman was outstanding was that he understood customer journeys and design thinking before these terms became part of the business vocabulary. He wasn't hung up uh, about the product per se. So when people asked him and said, well, how, how do we buy stationery to work with your accounting product? Instead of shrugging his shoulders, he produced invoices and payslips because of course he was a printer. And when people said, well, how do we make this thing work for our business? We started to advise them and significantly charge for the service. In the early 80s, it was highly unusual for software companies to offer such support. It's been, of course, over nine years since Mark Andreessen, co-founder and general partner of venture capital firm Andresen Horowitz, wrote a famous essay in the Wall Street Journal about why software is eating the world. In 2020, software literally ate the world. Thank you very much.
0: And James, what are the opportunities offered by digital? And why have housing organisations been reluctant to start the journey?
2: The opportunities offered by digital are limited really only by the imagination of people thinking about them. The possibilities for uh, the digital transformation of a housing business using artificial intelligence, pattern recognition, voice recognition, face recognition, drones, you know, the whole panoply of of new technology that could be used is is limitless. And it is extraordinary perhaps how few housing associations have taken many steps along that road to date. Now the question then is, well why haven't they? And there's a number of reasons. I think the first one is the existence of legacy systems the way that we've always done these things. And we work with any number of organisations who are operating five, six or even more legacy systems. They can't really transfer data between them except by using the dreaded Excel spreadsheets. Uh, They have ongoing problems with data integrity that occasionally catch them up and occasionally are just a, a bit of a nuisance. And the sheer upheaval of getting rid of those old systems um, is is daunting for people. We've seen the same in the airline industry where some of the airline systems go back to the 70s or 80s and and they simply don't want to to replace them because it's just too much trouble. I think there's more to it as well. Um, History is full of transformation projects that have been seen to fail. So nobody wants to be first. Nobody wants to Uh, be an early adopter. They want to see other people making a mess of things and learn by their mistakes. And um, finally, um, I think that our industry is not that well served in terms of software. Uh, The the products available um, are simply not all singing, all dancing, integrated systems. They do one particular aspect typically reasonably well they don't talk to the other ones so i think there's a whole range of factors around leadership around legacy uh, and around the technology that are holding people back
0: thanks so it's time now to hear from our first witness dr joe north leads the strategy and development of the port of Tyne's 2050 innovation hub and open innovation program joe north did your business case represent a game-changing moment for port of Tyne, and if it did what impelled the board to support
1: it
3: our Time 2050 strategy, actually, along with the Innovation Hub, um, are game changers. So we have a strategy called Time 2050, which is really all about transforming how we do business. And that's part of a bigger picture. So in January 2019, the government launched the Maritime 2050 strategy for the country, which is looking at all the things that are going on in the world, um, You know, the pace of change, the way that trade is evolving, and the role that digital technology in the fourth industrial revolution plays in that. So we launched our innovation hub in the summer of of 2019. Um, It was a government aspiration to have some innovation hubs in maritime in the years ahead. So we went went first. We were brave. Uh, Just listening to what James was saying, we, we went for it. And we wanted to really encourage others to do the same. And in terms of, of the business case, you know, the purpose of the Innovation Hub, firstly, it is at Port of Time. So our physical home is there. We have a building in those days where we were you know, allowed to congregate and get together and run various open innovation sprints and other things. Um, but we've it's also a partnership with um, Port of Time, PD Ports, Accenture, the Department for Transport, Ubisoft, Nissan, Accenture and Connected Places Catapult. And it's all about working together to achieve things that on our own would be far more challenging for either party. We are there to really raise the game and help support maritime across the UK. We're also there to really support the region and drive economic growth and prosperity for the Northeast as well. So, You know, the business case is we are a trust port. That means we don't have to um, show, I guess, a return on investments to shareholders in the same way that a private organisation might. Uh, We are there to really make sure that the port is in a a really good place for the future. Uh, And that's what we're there to do. And of course, there's a business case for not changing. Uh, And that's that's not a very strong one. The business case is we need to keep up with the markets that we serve globally um, and in the UK as
0: well. What difference did it make that the board uh, was a trust rather than a a for-profit organisation?
3: I think, I mean, it depends on the for-profit organisation and their philosophy and their ethos. So there are as many different types of for-profit organisation as there are probably different organisations. But the the difference it makes is that we are really clear about our purpose, which is to um, protect the port, to support the region that we serve, and to drive growth and to be there really as custodians to hand the port on to future generations in a better place than we found it
2: well i'm I'm interested in the risks here when when you started off on this process, how likely did it seem that the whole thing might just fall flat on its face and I suppose the other question following on from that is yeah. how vulnerable would you be now to organized cybercrime coming in and holding the whole thing to ransom, it all grinds to a halt. So maybe you could say a bit about the risks.
3: Okay, so the risks are obviously offset against the reward and we do a lot of work to make sure that what we're doing, we think based on the information that we have, there's no such thing as a risk-free innovation. You know, innovation by definition in digital means doing things that haven't been done before. They might have been done somewhere else, you can learn from that but you've never done them right here, right now, um, in this particular way. So we do risk as much as possible. And from a cyber point of view, we make sure that we work with the the best people and we have a really strong cyber strategy. But I just really want to pick up on risk because there's a sense of organizational, something called organizational self-efficacy. And what that means is how confident is the organization that they're going to make it work and that they will problem solve Um, along the way and and actually work things out and I think you know we've got we've got a a really good board but it's also down to the people on the ground it's down to partners it's down to the people that we work with as well it's a collective collaborative co-creative effort to really drive digital transformation and, and make it succeed and it's about all being you know believing in that and challenging each other as well along the way
0: did it feel as though there was a burning platform impelling you to do this
3: um there isn't a burning platform immediately you know we could do no digital transformation and we would continue to deliver business successfully but it's about you know thinking about the future the world is changing this that there is such a wealth of digital technology that can really help us to be safer more invent- environmentally friendly that will help us you know, have more efficient operations that can deliver a much better customer experience. And we want to make sure that we make use of that and, and be the very best port that we can be, um, serve our stakeholders, serve our customers, and, and do a great job. So uh, you know, it's, it's not a burning platform. Having said that, any, if any organization leaves things too long, then of course they'll experience strategic drift and be behind the curve. And then
1: it will be more challenging. Uh, Joe, you've just used this kind of interesting word, platform. And so I imagine that as a port, had originally sort of a quite transactional product as such. But um, digital technology obviously sort of creates a kind of incredible network opportunities.
2: Mm. And I
1: would sort of think that actually connecting all the kind of stakeholders in the kind of port operations kind of... might allow you to actually almost redefine what business you're actually in so I wonder whether you could sort of elaborate it on the not the burning platform but the platform opportunity this business might present a little
3: yeah it's a great question thank you I think at the with digital there is so much opportunity to be connected to other ports around the world and we are actually part of the connected ports organization so there's a number of ports literally around the world uh, where we're working on how what we can learn from data sharing and being connected and having a learning innovation community that's also looking at how we can put that learning into practice and good outcomes so that's the first thing there's another area of, of digital connectivity which is about the whole supply chain and connecting through to the hinterland And then there's a third opportunity, which we're um, just really uh, working on right now and have been working on for some time, which is the digital Freeport uh, opportunity. The great thing about the digital opportunity for our Freeport bid is that We can really look at how things are coming in and out from a global trade perspective. So larger manufacturers like Nissan can really make sure that the whole process tracks everything through and that also from an HMRC perspective, what we're doing is we're able to offer fraudulent free duty optimization.
1: And if you sort of, um, I mean, take this sort of one step further. I mean, one one of the things they sort of say these days that actually if you take this kind of network platform concept to an extreme you can end up with a business that actually might be the biz- biggest business in, in space yet has no no tangible assets of their own so if you think about for instance the the biggest hotel chain in the world um that uh, doesn't own any hotels uh, uh,
3: same with you with uber isn't it you know exactly
1: uh, airbnb you know? i'm thinking of airbnb yeah <laughs> yeah
3: So I think, you know, my one of the the philosophies that I have is disrupt or be disrupted. Mm -hmm. So if you can see that a change is coming, make or or that a change is possible, then really try and take advantage of of the opportunity to use that technology to leverage that change to suit the organization. And don't leave it too late. And we we've got a long way to go. You know, we're not completely digital or anything. We're in very much on the journey. But I'm really ex- ecstatic with the progress we're making with the Innovation Hub.
2: Mm. One, of, one of the mistakes I've seen people make is um, they think they're going to do digital transformation and they do indeed buy new kit, but they end up doing exactly what they did before, but just using different technology. Yeah. So I'm curious about how you how you turned it into a real transformation project rather than just a kind of, let's get some new kit project.
3: Well, I think the first thing is to not just copy existing processes and approaches and get your digital thing to replicate how you're already working. It's really important to go back and think, why are we working this way? Does this make most sense? Is this the most efficient and best way of working? How can the technology really help us be more efficient and improve the quality and consistency of what we do? And go right back to first base with with process and, and how things are done. I think that's a really big mistake. People just put in the the digital replication of what they're doing on the ground, you know, and uh, it's a real opportunity to to streamline and think things through and think about how you can build in. You know, for an operation like ours, the safety and environmental aspects of what we do are really important. So how can we enhance those as well?
2: I think the other mistake people sometimes make is doing the whole thing top down. So clever people sit in a room and say, right, we're going to do it this way. But actually, you have to ask the end users, the the frontline staff and people, maybe you could say a little bit about how you involved people in creating these new processes.
3: Yes. Uh, so from people from all around the organisation um, are involved. We've done some, uh, some process mapping and some conversations about how things are done and where the opportunities lie. So the whole thing really relies on co-creation from different stakeholders. And um, Klaus mentioned, I think it was Klaus mentioned, uh, design thinking uh, earlier on. And although we won't necessarily badge it as, as design thinking, those design principles, design thinking principles are at the heart of what we do in terms of thinking about the user experience, but also thinking about the user's insight and how we can build that into what we're doing
0: Thank you. And when you look around the world, Joe, are there examples uh, of um, digital changes that have been proved really successful in your line business?
3: Yeah, sure. So when, when, if you look at an organisation like the Port of Rotterdam, for instance, you know they have a really big team of developers. They're doing some fantastic things with digital and are ahead. They're a, a massive. Um, an important port and organisation, and we work really closely with them. And we're learning from them in terms of things that they've done, things that they're doing, uh, and sharing expertise as we are with the with connected ports. So um, we also look from from an open innovation point of view. We also look out of sector. Uh, again, I'm I'm a big believer in that if you want to be the best, you don't just look to the best within your industry because that's already setting the ceiling you know the best you can do is to match the best Um, so looking for outer sector transferable insight as well is really important so uh, working with sectors like defense um, different energy sectors um, satellites uh, lots of different organizations who actually are trying to solve similar challenges it's all about efficiency safety um, the environment and and growth and we can all learn a lot from each other
0: Thanks for that. And I just wanted to pick up, Klaus, on one point that you made and ask you, how has digital
1: changed Sage? I think it is. Um, I mean, obviously, Sage is a bit of a special case because our product was digital, being a software company, of course, in, in a way from the get go. But I was what I was trying to sort of um, illustrate earlier on was that digital transformation is more than just having a product and even be it a, a digital product. It really goes to this kind of thinking about the, thinking about the outcome you're gonna create, you're gonna mm-hmm. offer rather than the product you're gonna deliver. And I would sort of say working for Sage, I'm sort of fortunate in the sort of sense that Sage was indeed in the software industry so my, my own business was acquired by Sage. so I have a bit of an external perspective to this uh, as well. But that Sage was quite unique in understanding that it was actually about the outcome. But That, that alone is, of course, not a, enough because that also needs to, an analog customer journey, if you had one, needs to sort of be transformed. Digital, of course, then sort of makes creates disruption, uh, creates new opportunities. So for instance, the, uh, the, the point we had touched on with Joe uh, earlier, uh, platform, are we a product business really? Or are we a platform business? Or are we a bit of both? How do we actually, how do we uh, leverage the collaboration opportunities? Do we need to rethink who our competitors are? When are our competitors now becoming partners? Core petition. So those those are sort of all all kind of aspects. Now for Sage specifically, of course, a lot being a tech company, a lot of course starts in recognizing the just simply the opportunities technology provides. And, and I think it can be there can be no doubt that actually the the kind of technology convergence we have sort of seen around. Well, machine learning, cloud computing, and so forth has has completely transformed and has, of course, I mean, in many ways, democratized technology. So that, in a way, the port of time can now sort of think of itself as being a cloud business, and that's, of course, sort of what what uh, what we're doing at sort of Sage as well for the kind of accounting and payroll and kind of compliance side, and and of course, being a tech company, we're uh, often, sort of at the at the crisp of that uh, that wave.
0: And what sort of challenge comes your way from the upstarts that don't have the legacy to overcome that
1: you guys do? People like Zero, they uh, can start with a sort of um, um, clean um, slate and build something. Um, completely from scratch, whereas an established organization obviously needs to transform from something to to this kind of new place. And so you can't you can't build you can't do that overnight. So you actually have to you have to I, I guess you have to sort of use various tools. You firstly you have to have a mindset of being being willing to disrupt yourself. But you also have to um, accept that some areas of the business business need to progressively transform. And then I think, thirdly, you have to really do a little bit of soul searching about, well, what sort of organization you really are. That's why I sort of highlighted this sort of sage was, in many ways... You could argue: Were we ever a product company, or were we a service company? And and had we invented software as a service again before even the technologies uh, for that uh, existed? So I think you have to, you have to, as an organization who transforms, you have to sort of understand that some of this gives you strengths, but some of this is also a weakness. So when uh, sort of new kids on the block a- a arrive, like, uh, like the company you've just mentioned, there's no point in copying them. You actually have to, you have to find your own way and confidence in doing that. And so one of the things I think, just as sort of Joe uh, illustrated, is this kind of quest for innovation and experimentation. Um, and, and I think actually, ex- I, I cannot sort of emphasize enough how, how important experimentation in that is, out of which comes confidence in doing it your own way and not doing it just how uh, someone who sort of started with in a different time with a different business model does it.
3: I think as well, we're always in beta uh, the, as, a, as a digital Uh, society we're always in beta there's something that's in in development it's there now but it's always being worked on in terms or it should be in terms of the next generation of of thinking and it's actually getting into that cycle you know the days of the the perfect digital solution that takes uh, an eon to develop and perfect are long gone we've got to test fast learn fast. I prefer the word learn rather than fail and and then go again. And it's, I think Klaus is absolutely right. It's about setting up experiments, but where, you know, if that experiment doesn't work, then we can, we, we can deal with that and we know we'll learn from it. The thing if we don't experiment is that we don't get any feedback on ideas. We only get feedback on ideas on innovations by taking action and doing something with them. So experimentation is key. I'd like also to draw out the point about um, I loved Klaus's point about uh, the outcome, and sometimes we can think about outcome by starting with data and going back even a step further, which is to say what is it we want to do here what what would we love to know that we don't know already? Um, what would we like to do more of? you know why why are we doing things this way and asking those questions right up front and then getting data. Into a really good place because without the data basis, without great questions, without great great data and a clear outcome, the whole digital journey becomes so much more
2: challenging. You See, I, if I was um, if I was a, a chief executive of a long-standing housing organisation and I heard the words "disrupt yourself," I think it would send a shiver down my spine, probably, because I would think my goodness me how can i disrupt myself i'm responsible for 50,000 lives for safety critical stuff for collecting the rent every week for getting the repairs done 99% of the time how can i possibly afford to disrupt myself so how how would you reassure somebody who's thinking well this is all really exciting you know i love what's been said but how would you reassure somebody who is kind of teetering on the brink and thinking, but well, I'd love to do this, but I'm just not sure, sure I would dare because actually there's too much at stake.
3: I'd say uh, two words, Woolworths and Blockbuster Video, uh, and I could add many more words to that. There are, uh, and there are ways of, of disrupting yourself that where you're experimenting, you're trying things out, but actually the risk is is fairly low, so you can do things alongside the day-to-day operation. You can do things in parallel. You can find space that's adjacent to what you do day to day while you learn, and you know, and, and keep the the main operation intact to get something right, and then start to roll it out. And of course, piloting. You know, trying some trying something in, in one place, uh, keep everywhere else protected, but try it over here and get the pilot right, and then you can start to to roll it out. But if you know the, the opportunity is there and if people don't disrupt themselves as leaders and disrupt their own organisations then at some point that disruption is going to happen to you and better to actually decide how you're going to move forward in this new world and, and take those decisions and take those actions than have it imposed and you're having to react um, after the event. Thank you.
0: And now for our second witness. Heather Ashton is taking Housing Organisation 13 on an ambitious digital journey. Heather, when I say digital to a lot of clients, they often hear large IT project and have a strong allergic reaction. How have you dealt with that?
4: Thanks, John. I think by being very clear that that isn't what it is. Uh, right at the very start. It's not a huge IT project. It's actually an ability for an organisation, as Jo has mentioned quite a lot in in her piece, to look at how they deliver services, the processes behind that. Um, And we actually, the lead for us at 13 on the digital project is the Director of Customer Services because it's done very much from a customer perspective. Yes, IT are there to support it, to deliver the right infrastructure, to offer guidance on particular products to use, but it's actually a, a customer services led project. We make sure that um, colleagues are involved throughout. It's a real opportunity, um, as Jo was, was saying in her piece, to, to look at those processes, to look at how we can simplify the offer to our customers, uh, make it much easier for them to, to transact with us ultimately. Um, and we look at it as, as kind of the shop front now for 13. Um, So, yes, we've got legacy systems sat in the background, but that should not be a a bother or a worry for our customers. What they want to know is how to do business with us, where to find something and to do that as easily and as quickly as possible um, over a digital platform, if that is how they wish to do it. Um, So so being very clear, as I say right at the start, that it's not a huge IT project. It's actually about how we look to deliver um, a consistent and excellent service to our customers but through a digital angle, and take the opportunity to really review the processes and streamline and automate where we
0: can. And how's it changing the inside of the business as well as the outside?
4: Um, very much because what what it's doing is um, is making sure that where you streamline a process or you offer more um, information in terms of you know using AI, using bots to to get underneath the data and and, and really analyze and and look at the areas that that you need to focus on. Then for many of the colleagues in 13, it it means that their jobs are hopefully more fulfilling, that they have time free then to deal with some of the more complex and vulnerable cases that we have across the organisation, and they're not spending their days just trawling through customer information, um, keeping customers up to date when that can all be done through a self-serve. So it really is is, is freeing up um, time within the organisation to offer uh, a more... um, Bespoke service to those customers that need it. It's giving the organisation more information to then really understand trends uh, and and track how how we are operating um, in certain areas, um, such as arrears, which is a, another huge issue that the housing aso- associations face. Um, it allows us to be much more uh, focused on the on the cases that we need to concentrate on. So we use a lot of um, AI intelligence to to run algorithms. Um, to, to to help us understand, right, these are the cases that we focus on this week um, and to free up the capacity to do that, reduce the areas as well, which brings more income into the company to help, allow us to invest in, in what we should invest in. So I guess in short, it, it, it's redirecting resources appropriately. Um, and that's a real benefit. It does come with its downside, you know, as an organisation, if you are going to invest heavily in digital um, and you're going to streamline and automate services, then ultimately you will reduce headcount, um, a large um cost for any housing association is its workforce Um, and if you need fewer of those to deliver your services then that does come with consequences in terms of you know having to let some people go Uh, but the way we look at it as well is is hopefully we can retrain reskill and redirect um, that spare capacity as i said to deal with with other areas of business that we haven't yet looked to automate or it will still need that human that human touch and that human service
2: thanks Heather um, very interesting Well, listening to you speak I, I was reminded that some of the large housing associations have spent 30 40 50 million pounds on new systems and they've all come up with their own systems and none of them work that well although they do broadly speaking work what what is it that holds housing associations back from collaborating why why well, didn't 13 talk to five other associations in the northeast and think why don't we just do this together
4: that's a really good question james and i'm not sure i'm going to be able to answer it it comes down to culture uh leadership teams um data protection i mean as a sector you know that we we pride ourselves on not necessarily being competitive but then we are competitive um and there are having said that there are lots of areas where we do work together Uh, where we do um, share information and we actually, uh, you know, deliver services in a very joined up way. Um, How and why we've not cracked that from a digital perspective, Um, I'm not entirely sure. And and as I said, it it, it probably comes down to culture and willingness across organisations. I mean, I I can give an example where at at 13, we we did work together with another organisation and we actually ended up merging as an organisation because we recognised that on the ground, we were delivering a lot of services together and our teams were actually working together to deliver those services. Um, And as a result, because of our geographical operating area, we came together um, to form 13. So so it does happen. Um, Why it's not happened um, from a digital and an IT perspective, that's not to say it won't happen in the future. Why it happen, hasn't happened so far, though, I guess, being absolutely honest, I'm, I'm going to put it down to um, culture and um, and potentially, you know, protection of, of customer data and an inability to find a way to to share that.
2: Thank you. And speaking of culture, one, one when new systems are in, I think people often find they're recruiting for different skills. The people coming into the business, it's about attitude, and behaviours, rather than about the kind of detailed experience of a particular area. Has that kicked in yet with yourselves?
4: I think at 13, we've always had uh, for a number of years, uh, the approach that we recruit for attitude and, and train for skill, uh, because we find that attitude, you know, that supports our values and bea- behaviours as an organisation is really, really important. Um, and, and I think, again, as an organisation, what we are investing in now, as I, I think I've probably made reference to, is making sure that when we recruit, we recruit um not necessarily actually just recruit, but as we are working with all of our colleagues within the organization, we are now looking at how um, their skills um, match the current offer and are also looking to the future in terms of what skills we'll need in three, four, five, maybe 10 years' time and being very clear now as to how we want to work with colleagues within 13 to help them. Um, refresh their skills, learn their skills, move across the organisation, understand what their talent aspirations, what their career aspirations are, and work with them. And, and, and hopefully, uh, as I said right at the start, offer them a more fulfilling role where a lot of the transactional, dare I say, mundane aspects of a role are automated and, and it actually frees people up um, within the sector to have more fulfilling jobs. I think, James, you'll know that the housing sector uh, attracts a certain individual because of the you know the the, the services that we offer um, and that ability to make a difference to someone's life either through the service that you offer you know you're housing them you're, you're giving them some some care and support so I think it does attract a certain person um, and and I think you know if you have that great value set and you can offer support then with colleagues as you digitize and transform an organization to take those colleagues with you to give them more fulfilling roles I think you know that 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 hopefully is is a great
0: and worthwhile investment thanks i think there's a i recognize the point about about the type of person who comes to work in the sector but i think that's often we often experience that as when the subject of digital transformation comes up the very first question about it is that your vulnerable customers get left behind Mm -hmm. and and so it's almost as though the people who have come to work in the sector, they, th- their commitment to supporting those vulnerable residents becomes a barrier to digital rather than a way forward into it. And I wonder if you if that rings any bells.
4: It, it does, um, but also I think it's an opportunity um, to, 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 to explore as well. I think, you know, historically, w- what we found at 13 is, is for example, we have a, a quite a large contact team. Uh, And many of our customers for a number of years, the way that they would come into contact with us was through the contact team. They would ring us and they would be dealt with by the contact team. And they're a great um, set of colleagues that we have within 13 who go out of their way to make sure that they resolve the issue that the customer has at first point of contact. That they, you know, they engage with them during that conversation, um, and and sometimes go over and above what they need to do to to make sure that they solve all of the issues and that they're there as that person, that friendly voice to speak to at the end of the phone. Maybe, you know, from a commercial perspective, spend too long on that call and are too open and engaging. And you know, I think the opportunity there is, as I, as I've said, if you have those colleagues within the organisation who are very skilled, very Good at uh, dealing with a lot of problems up front, know the business know the services can can, can sign post and, and and support people then you know by automating and streamlining and digitizing more of the transactional side of the business, what that then does is is free those colleagues up to, to do exactly that. I mean, we've looked more recently at um, one of the performance indicators in 13 was to make sure that we answered all calls within 30 seconds. Now, we know with performance indicators, they often drive the wrong performance. And what we've recognised is that for for those where we are able to allow more time to to have a conversation with a customer, um, then what that is doing is driving up customer satisfaction because they are getting a better service but we're also freeing up capacity because we're putting more things through self service so simple things to look at like you know paying your rent booking the repair we now do the whole letting process online we're about to move the antisocial behavior process um, through to a digital online service uh, and what that does is is actually free up capacity for colleagues to deal as i've said with those more vulnerable um, customers and, and to offer that time to support them and if i think just about the the anti behavior offer that we're now putting online it allows people um, hopefully to report very sensitive confidential issues as and when and they happen 24-7 and to know that you know even if it's just an, an AI response to start off with then they are being listened to and their and their cases is, is being recorded and then we can have a conversation with them the next day.
0: Thanks, Joe.
3: I think as well and it built on what Heather was saying about antisocial behaviour is that technology can actually help with accessibility and inclusion. Uh, through for instance you know voice activation uh, through a device like an alexa or another brand can can really help people get in contact with with housing and and thinking about the functionality of something like what an, an apple watch can do right now in terms of measuring you know oxygen levels and hearts and and so on there is so much possibility through uh, technology to really um, help vulnerable customers and I, so i think it's, it's not just about, you know, the negatives of technology and vulnerability. There are some great
4: opportunities to be creative with it as well. I would agree joe and thanks for that i mean some of the things that we are looking at we're piloting in some of our homes is actually putting those devices in homes so that you know you can you can see straight away if if one of the the, the tenants hasn't moved around the house during the day if they haven't put the kettle on um you know if there's, 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 there are systems that we have now um that will help us you know make sure the house is being heated um, and also, when it comes to you know diagnosing faults, um, we'll ha- we we are looking at ways in which we can see that a boiler is not working before the customer knows the boiler is not working, so that they don't have to ring us. We we can actually you know look at, at fixing that problem um, as soon as as soon as it it, it occurs. So yeah, you're mm-hmm. absolutely right, Joe. It's more than just you know that 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 transactional stuff that I was talking about. It's actually the smart stuff that we can put um, in in a number of our customers' homes.
2: Yeah, I mean, there is, that. that's really interesting. And it kind of brings me on to this whole question about the dark side of technology. And if you look at, for instance, at the way landlords, in private landlords in the United States have used advanced technology uh, and face recognition and so on, you know, the logarithms have actually discriminated against minority groups. Um, and you've seen that trend towards what I think Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism in which um, you know, every, every movement of the customer is kind of under intense scrutiny. And I suppose I wondered how at 13 you've tackled kind of the ethical dimensions. I don't think many associations yet have ethics officers, but actually the introduction of new technology, you know, the surveillance of people's fridges and kettles and so on, does raise some really fundamental questions about human rights and privacy. How have you tackled that?
4: well we're right at the very start james so literally we have you know a handful of pilot properties at the minute and and we put the kit into those properties with the consent of those customers and we you know we we explain to them at the start that this is what we we will be monitoring and you know and this is what we won't be monitoring and and this is how we'll use the information and and you know so we're very clear at the start but you're right james it, it it's quite a tricky subject and and could stray us down um a route that none of us would want to go down so I think it's being very clear at the start why you are monitoring something and for what reason, and being very clear that you can demonstrate that you are only going to use it for that reason and, and be very clear with the customer at the start on that.
0: And when you look around the sector, uh, my observation would be that, that, that most providers are some distance behind 13 in what they're doing digitally. Why do you think the sector has been slow to move?
4: I think there's, there's a range of things. I think as an organisation, um, particularly large organisations like 13, we offer a range of products and services. Um, and what we try to do, or what we, a lot of us have tried to do, is, is try and offer all of that today in a digital format in a in a big project way and that's not the way to do it you know really what we've done is we've stepped back and looked at what are the quick wins what can we automate what can we digitize now what should we you know leave until later Um, and I think as a sector because we offer so much support right we saw to our customers we try and probably do too much um we try and, um, you know, deliver it all in one piece. Um, as James said, a lot of us have got legacy systems. Have they held us back? Um, you know, we have an example at 13 where we looked about five years ago to bring in a new whole encompassing system where it was looking at the whole housing management as well as the asset management. And we realized 12 to 18 months in that that was the wrong thing to do. And what we should have done was actually look at best of breed for each particular service area Um, and look at then how we join those together internally to make sure that we could actually access all of the data to understand everything that was going on. Um, and we've taken that forward and we now use our digital offer. So our our my 13, as it's called, our digital platform. Um, as I said, I think right back at the start, that's our shop window. That's kind of where you come into the business. And what we've done is made sure that we don't confuse our internal systems and present all of that wiring to the customer. What the customer wants to see is how do I get in touch with you and how do I actually buy or get or make the, you know uh, the request that I want to do? So I think it, it's a combination of all of that that will have held a lot of housing associations back the range of services that they offer and as James said the legacy systems that sit behind it.
3: I just wondered Heather have any of the housing organisations done anything like created the smart property for the future that's eco-friendly, safe, you know got a whole heap of stuff built in that might actually be a, a template or a blueprint for something you might do for you know, anything new that you do or
4: any new builds? Not that I'm aware of, um, although I'm sure some of the other panelists will, will correct me if I'm wrong. But the area that, that the sector is investing in more so is modern methods of construction. And definitely there, there is a template and a blueprint in terms of um, improving how we how we um, construct profit properties off-site and then we can deliver out new homes more quickly and i guess very quickly on the back of that will become then the the implementation of, of you know smart solutions within those homes. halton housing i think historically would pride themselves on on, on introducing you know a smart solution in, in, into their homes but i guess another issue that we need to think about in the housing sector is whilst we're looking at modern methods of construction in terms of new home delivery, there's a huge stock of existing homes that would need a, a massive retrofit. Um, and we're already as a sector looking at kind of decarbonisation alongside smart solutions. Um, and it, and it's, it's quite a huge bill that we're looking at there in terms of the investment that we would need to make into all of those properties.
3: Yeah, I just think a blueprint for uh, a retrofit for you know, the home of, of the near future, that incorporates all the construction methods and digital would be absolutely awesome, and, and really be a multiplier effect for all the construction innovations that you that are you
4: putting in place in the sector. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Joe.
0: I think the issue there, Joe, has been that um, this, perhaps in some ways, it's it's similar to the the, the point that Heather made about about housing providers providing such a wide service that they don't know where to start. Well, when you, when you look at decarbonisation, the scale of the challenge is so big and there's been virtually no public policy response yet. So mm. there are some broad targets, but there's no preferred technological pathway. There's no funding associated with any particular technology pathway. And mm. so people have been slow to move for that reason.
1: Um, Klaus, you had
0: your, uh, a question. Yeah,
1: Heather, you sort of mentioned uh, AI and bots and, and some of the sort of emerging technology uh, sort of a few times, which which is which uh, sort of impressive. I wondered when sort of when people sort of articulate a vision for the future, there's sort of two broadly sort of two schools of thought. One is um, AI augmented human work or human augmented AI work, i.e. who supports what or whom? And so I wondered what side of the argument you stand and why?
4: I don't know is the honest answer to that, Klaus. I think um, where I come from, uh, from an AI perspective is probably, the, the human side of, of looking at AI in terms of supporting what the human does or replacing what the human does to, um, to make it safer for the human. The example I would give uh, to make sure I've, I've got your, your question right, Klaus, is an area that we could look to invest more in um, that has come out of the recent pandemic or the current pandemic is looking at how we keep communal areas clean and safe uh without putting employees at risk i mean we've got fantastic ppe for all of our um staff and they have you know risk assessments safe operating procedures ex effort we we pride ourselves on 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 keeping them safe but you know could could a bot do that job um quicker Easier and obviously take away the the human element. So you know that that I'm, I I am all for. Um, I mean the other side of AI uh, and, and bot that we are looking at at 13 is actually utilising a bot to do quite a lot of um, reading through. Um, certain records again to to pull out the areas where we need to then make an intervention um and, and help us you know understand which records we can we can just leave so so kind of replicating somebody clicking through a document and doing that you know a hundred two hundred to a thousand times faster um as a bot. So I guess mm. I think what I'm saying is I see AI mm. helping the human yeah. the human side if that if that makes sense.
1: There's always mm. adult supervision of all that kind of technology by <laughs> uh-huh. by human beings. And, and I mm. guess that also is a pointer then towards the kind of ethics of, of things. Mm. Because yeah, I, I guess depending on which side you are, the question of ethics then sort of changes somewhat. Mm-hmm. Indeed. James, you had a point.
2: Yes. Um it's going back a bit. There are one or two interesting demonstration projects. Of digital homes, and the one that I would mention off the top of my head is the Blackwood Home, which is primarily a kind of care offering from a very innovative organisation in Scotland, which is well worth a look. Um, but coming back to, to this question about why why have housing associations been slow? Uh, might it be Heather because there's nobody breathing down their neck? There isn't really much competition. There aren't any upstarts worth mentioning. So. The kind of that that competitive pressure that we've heard about that applied to SAGE say um, maybe just doesn't apply to housing associations because it's actually quite jammy there's nobody out there giving them a hard time.
4: I would disagree with that to a degree James um, in terms of you know your comment that that we've got it quite jammy Um, and where I would uh, say that there is pressure on us is to um improve our performance and um, to, to be very, very clear that we are delivering value for money, that we are utilizing our assets wisely. Um, so that performance around you know increased supply into the sector, uh, making sure that you know our customers have low-cost homes to heat. Um, there's an awful lot of pressure from the regulator there is pressure from our funders to make sure that we invest wisely and that, that that you know we have good quality stock so i think where we put pressure on ourselves probably more than anything james to make sure that we do really utilize our resources wisely and if we can free up capacity by use of ai bot digital whatever to mean that we have more capacity to then invest further uh, and as i've said you know do the retrofit We've got a huge challenge ahead of us now in the sector you know we've talked about Grenfell um in terms of building safety so we've got building safety to deliver we need to look at carbon neutral which is a huge retrofit program there's you know there's a housing need in terms of delivering more more homes um so what we need to do is make sure that that you know the funds that come in the income that comes into the organization is used wisely uh, and is spent well um so that that pressure comes from 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 um you know the regulator um from um the ministry Um, and so yes we might not necessarily have that competitive um, pressure put on us but as an organisation in terms of you know utilising our income streams and and really delivering a, a good product, a quality product, a safe home going forward then that does put the pressure on.
0: Thank you. Thanks. So to finish we'll go around the panel and the witnesses and answer this question. Focusing on one of cultural leadership, What are the most important tactics that enable a digital transformation to succeed? One per person, please. First,
1: Klaus. I'm glad you asked me first, John. I would say create a culture of uh, experimentation. So cultivate curiosity, start with small bets, emphasize uh, data-informed decisions, Accept failures, which are really just ways of finding out what doesn't work. Democratise participation. Include your customers or clients. And do all this ethically.
0: That's great. Thank you.
1: Joe.
3: Disrupt or be disrupted. And have a really clear bullseye that you're aiming for. And when you're doing all the experimentation that Klaus spoke about, make sure that experimentation takes you closer towards that bullseye.
0: Excellent, thank you. Heather?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's about being very clear as to why you are doing it, look at the outcome that you're aiming for and to involve the, the teams, the, the, the colleagues within the organisation um, and not just as somebody said at the start, you know, take it off into a little private room to develop the project, but involve the teams that are actually going
0: to deliver the outcome. Brilliant, thank you. And finally, James?
2: Well, I think everybody had more than one there. I want to complain. Uh, But I think it's about leadership. I think it's about leading from the front. Yes, you have to democratise, but actually the leaders have to step up. They have to have a really clear vision. They have to take people with them. They have to communicate and carry on communicating. They have to remind people how they're doing. uh, And they have to be honest about their mistakes. And if they do those things, people will follow them.
0: That's great. Thank you. To finish off, I'm joined by Nick Salloway, Managing Director of Curious, who's been listening to the discussion. Nick, disrupt or be disrupted? Is that statement true for the housing sector?
5: It probably won't surprise you that my answer to that is a firm yes, Uh, whether you're a housing association or indeed any other kind of business. Um, The issue though, uh, as I think James implied in his question to Joe about why would a housing association CEO choose to disrupt their business, is that the word disruption is interesting because it tends to invoke a negative mindset. People don't want to be disrupted, they don't like to take risks, they tend to like things to stay the same, to maintain the status quo. And and in truth, disrupting yourself without breaking the business is, is a difficult thing to do. Uh, Clayton Christensen um, talks at length in the Innovator's Dilemma about why businesses find it difficult to disrupt themselves or or to deal with disruption from new market entrants, but he also talks about why it's essential they do. In the context uh, of an an existing business, self-disruption if you like, um, should be a force for good, uh, a force for progress. Um, Apple's success following Steve Jobs' return to the business was fundamentally underpinned by his willingness to disrupt his own business. Uh, And as Joe said, disrupting yourself rather than waiting to be disrupted um, by shaking up uh, the way a company is at present to innovate and find new ways to create and capture value. So that's positive disruption. And organisations that can build a culture that embraces disruption um, tend to perform better.
0: That's interesting, Nick. How might a housing association best manage the risks arising from disruption?
5: It, it depends what you mean by manage the risks. Um, as Joe said, it really is a case of disrupt or be disrupted. Uh, new entrants will appear and they and they will disrupt your business. Um, if you accept that, uh, And the question should really be, how do we disrupt ourselves without breaking our business? Uh, and I think there are three parts to that. Um, First and foremost, the business needs to understand that digitizing individual services does not on its own constitute digital transformation. Um, Digital transformation is a fundamental root and branch rethink of the business's operating model with the power of technology being applied to every aspect of the organization. Uh, The other thing is that leaders of the organization have to ensure there is clarity about the the definition of digital across the business, uh, and they understand how digital is changing the economics of the business uh, and what the business is uh, trying to achieve through its transformation. And I think lastly, that there has to be, uh, other people have spoken about this at length, but there has to be a mindset and culture that embraces innovation and a a management model that supports continuous improvement uh, and testing of new ideas. And a clear process for how how the business will go about actually doing the work of transforming how it operates.
0: The housing sector often regards its challenges as unusual and unique and runs the risk of ruling out possible innovations on that basis. Do you think the view is accurate?
5: So I I do think it's accurate to say that many businesses um, including housing associations um, think that what they do is unique But um, unless they really are at the bleeding edge, uh, in my experience, that's rarely the case. Um, In fact, I think the idea of industries or sectors is becoming somewhat anachronistic. One of the most significant consequences of the technological disruption that businesses are witnessing is the way in which businesses from previously unrelated sectors have begun to encroach on sectors in which they were not previously present. So what sector is Amazon in? Is it a retailer? Is it a software company? Or is it a media company? Is Apple a computer manufacturer? Or is it a watchmaker? We're also seeing um, digital enable the evolution of business ecosystems in which networks of businesses um, or organisations, including suppliers, distributors, customers, competitors, Um, Government agencies and so on can all be involved in the delivery of a product or service through competition and through cooperation. So how long might it be before the current de facto organisational form for delivering housing services is disrupted by a new entrant or business from a completely unrelated sector? Um, The discussion between um, Klaus and Joe talking about how digital offers the potential to create a, a kind of platform business left me wondering... What if housing associations looked at themselves as part of an ecosystem? How might they cooperate with other ecosystem players, for example utility companies or healthcare providers, employers or educational institutions to create an integrated value chain that that both supports but also transcends their primary mission of providing affordable homes to the less well-off? you know, how would, how would such a viewpoint disrupt and transform the housing association's business and operating models? How might that drive down the cost to serve so they can focus more resources on doing um, the harder work of supporting vulnerable people that St- Stephanie Goad and Louise Hunter debated in episode one? You know, if you think about a housing association as one of many ecosystem players... start to ask some really interesting questions about the role of housing association in a customer's life Uh, and the questions about the nature and approach to digital transformation become less about um, what's the best way to digitize individual services to drive incremental performance gains and much more about fundamental reform of the nature of the organization and and how it ultimately uses technology to create multiple sources of um, cultural, commercial and social value. So, so I think um, the housing associations that are able to disrupt themselves and think in these terms, uh, it's those housing associations that will ultimately create something which has the potential to be genuinely and truly unique.
0: That's great. Thanks, Nick. It only remains for me to thank our four panellists and Nick from Curious, and to remind you that Episode 3 covers the problems of Big Bang procurements and what commercial organisations are doing to reap the digital dividend. You will be able to download Episode 3 from the 15th of Feb when we hope you will join us. Until then, goodbye.